Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning and welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. My name is Nimrod Opambele. We are wrapping up a celebration of Women's Month. However, issues and issues challenging women, be it gender inequality, gender pay gap, are in both corporate and sports. Uh, issues around gender-based violence and femicide remains Achilles' heel, which nevertheless is not insurmountable as far as I'm concerned. If you miss any of our previous show, not to worry, simply visit our website, which is www.highfm.com, select your favorite podcast and share with us. In my last encounter, I had a privilege of interviewing Professor Klopper, who is a CEO at Da Vinci Business School. The good prof was able to nuance, at least in my perspective, issues and challenges facing higher education institutions, mainly the business school in this context, for they are meant to address high unemployment rate which begin in my mind, begin to question their very existence. If you missed that show, I implore you to go uh, into our website, as I've indicated earlier, and share your views through our socials, which is uh, 34519. And your views also most welcome via my Twitter handle, which is Dr. Mbele. As always, I'm not alone. I'm flanked by two extraordinary uh, folks which are producing the show, one being Vusima Singa and two being Harry Shileke. Gentlemen, I'm eternally grateful for your technical argument and support this program to the delight of the listeners, and which is obviously something that we need. In today's conversation, I'm joined by Justice Ndaba, who is an executive at Knowledge and Gas Group. We are talking about governance lapses in the state-owned enterprises in the context of the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, as well as the outcomes of BRICS Summit that was held last week. It is common cause that South Africa must aggressively transform the public sector organizations in order to partner with private sectors who would obviously bring resources in, in a form of cutting-edge technology and investment, which will in turn create necessary jobs that are needed in the country. Ultimately, these initiatives must be used as a test to measure the extent to which the country is working towards achieving prescribed set of goals outlined in the uh, National Development Plan. I'm sure that you can agree with me. Our last week's activities, if you like, put the country on a global stage as we hosted the BRICS Summit, which is a powerful economic bloc. For once, we are known for good things. We're not known for hijackings. We're not known for Femicide, we're not known for inequality. For that once, we're known for something that is positive, of which if we're able to leverage the kinds of issues that we debated at the summit, will definitely move the unemployment level forward. You might have noticed that the summit is amidst the controversies of Russian invasion of Ukraine, which um, to many people surprised the, it went smoothly well. What was key is that we noted that countries such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Ethiopia, 
and Argentina, as well as the United Arab Emirates, were admitted to this group, which is meant to question or reshuffle, if you like, the world order, as they see that the current form of the world order is not based on just, or is not is unjust, or not, or if not reciprocal, if you like. In making sense of that, according to the Chinese President Jinping, the summit was historic and shows determination of brief countries for unity and cooperation with the broader developing countries. Our own president was able to echo the same sentiment by stating that BRICS has embarked a new chapter in its effort to build a world that is fair, a world that is just, and a world that is also inclusive and prosperous. The view of these leaders suggests that the current geopolitical configuration dubbed North or South uh, is neither fair nor just, hence there's a need to create a more balanced world order. That's the kind of supposition that comes across when you put your mind on those kinds of issues. As we move forward, let me take this opportunity to welcome my guest, who's not a, who's not a stranger to the show. Mr. Ndaba, good morning and welcome to Beyond Governance. Good morning to you, Doc, and your listeners. Thank you for inviting me. Mr. Ndaba, the reason why I raised the two mega project, if you like, or mega macroeconomic development issues, be it uh, the African Free Continental Free Trade Agreement as, as well as BRICS Summit, is that we need to look at the kinds of institutions that can translate policy ideals into programs that will address unemployment rates. And and key to that is the state-owned enterprises. We know that the state-owned enterprises play a huge role in laying the foundation for investment in the private sector, which would include uh, small enterprises. Just perhaps maybe give us your high-level overview of your take-home points around the summit itself. Obviously, did not personally participate in um, the BRICS formation. Uh, you would remember that the summit was the culmination of various subcommittees of BRICS in the difference for at least a month building up to the actual summit. So I managed to see some uh, documents around different committees. And uh, what I saw uh, was quite encouraging. Suffice to say that uh, whatever it is that was shared and agreed in those subcommittees, there were subcommittees around uh, small businesses, around informal businesses, around engineering sectors, around. So if you look at the the policies or the draft policies out of those, it is quite encouraging. And obviously, in the context of the Africa Free Trade Agreement as well, uh, you can see that there is light at the end of the tunnel, economically speaking, because some of these, they talk in the context of SADC, in the context of penetrating the African markets. So we are hoping that in our particular case, we don't do what we normally do, which is just drafting very good policies and not actually getting down to the coalface and implementing them. Because if we were to implement some of the strategies that I saw in terms of uh, encouraging trade, in terms of uh, encouraging growth, in terms of changing the way that we trade currently, it is very encouraging. One of the key things that uh, were, were takeaways for me, for me really, was that there was a huge emphasis uh, across the SADC market, across the African market, from African trade states within the Africa's free trade uh, agreements to say, as a strategy in the African market, 
we should focus on uh, beneficiation, meaning that there's the emphasis of not transporting raw minerals across to European markets without first beneficiating them here. So that in its sense will create new kinds of markets, new kinds of downstream business. Because, I mean, you, you would, for instance, instead of if you go to the aluminium business, if you, instead of just exporting the ingots as raw well as they are, you would have downstream businesses, maybe along Richards Bay, where you would begin to beneficiate the byproduct of aluminium. In the coal sector, and for instance, you might begin to have byproducts of coal, which you know there are quite many, including toothpaste and things like that. So you would create new markets or at least new industries within the country. And then as a result, you'll be able to export these. So that in itself would create new growth around the small business sector, new growth around some of the industries that we used to have or that we can have now, now that we will be beneficiating around raw materials. So that will in itself will also revive some of the small towns, you know, uh, and create new industries or revive dormant industries because you would have some of these towns that are around the mining. Let's say, for instance, Rustenberg around Chrome. We know that's the co- that's the um, the area where you have the most chrome, so you would have a lot of beneficiating industries around Rustenberg. If you go to the Northern Cape, Kuruman and them, you have iron ore there. So instead of just sending it to Saldana and shipping it out, you would have um, some of the downstream and other industries around beneficiating iron ore as an example. So that I found uh, quite encouraging as well. So you will be able to also penetrate the African market as the first in the first instance, and that we know will operate within the Africa Free Trade Agreement. Interesting insight that you've just shared with us. We'll come back to that just in a second. For I want to tease some of the issues that you're raising. Beyond Governance: Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus Ninety Four Research, the science of decision making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. Uh, this is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrat Tabele. I am joined by... Mr. Justice Ndaba, who's an executive at Knowledge Anchors Group. Before we took that short break, um, Justice was giving us his overall observation insofar as the activities which culminated to the BRICS Summit that was held last week. And one of the issues that you raised, which I want to probe a little bit more, um, one is that obviously is the value chain beneficiation, which is not new. Every other policy document that you've seen has made mention on on a quest to try and limit exportation of raw materials by creating infrastructure within a country to process these mining byproducts uh, so that we're able to create jobs, which I think hopefully this time around will have that kind of policy being firmed up by investments and being firmed up by necessary technology, as it were. But just this is an issue for me. One, I've already indicated that this is not new. Beneficiation is not new. As early as Tabumbeke's era, we've talked, we've been talking about beneficiations. The Zuma era, we talk about beneficiations. 
Ramaphosa, we're still talking beneficiation, which means that this beneficiation story, it really fails to, to be translated into a practical program that can be translated into job opportunities. My assessment is that one of the biggest challenges there is about uh, the state capacity. And my sense is that in absence of state capacity, having men and women with men and women with uh, qualification that are desperately needed, uh, technical skills um, that are needed, we are not going to ensure that these issues are translatable uh, to create employment. Your take on that? Perhaps maybe let me start where you started by saying, look, if you look at your point to say beneficiation has been there throughout the three presidencies at least. The difference this time around, one, is that the manner in which the policies in this time have been developed. In the previous presidencies, they they were just quite high level. So the difference this time is the dive in, working with industry associations with uh, different aspects. And, And also the difference in this time around is that there is clear guidelines on implementation of uh, benefits. So there is quite frameworks. Uh, for instance, there's the, the framework around skills development. There's a framework around that has been sent to DMR, DMRE around beneficiations as well at the, at the core phase, as I said, where it will develop the context. And also the last point, which was quite key, the, the previous beneficiations approaches were really just focused on and delinked to the EU uh, most of the markets where our raw materials were going to were to the EU markets. This time around, and why the context of Africa Free Trade Agreement is important, is that a new uh, marketing framework within the Brexit framework has already been pre-agreed in terms of where these new avenues, where some of these beneficiated products will go to. So we'll mostly also begin to create new markets within BRICS countries. So you have a clear framework where there are market linkages already, so where you can sell these products to. So I found that quite encouraging because I find that that will happen sooner than later. Mm -hmm. And it also is quite comprehensive in the sense that it links these new markets and these beneficiation strategies around skills development, around industry growth, around all of these factors that are quite critical. So you would have great growth across the soft skills and the hard skills and also against products. So that in itself, I find quite encouraging. Now to come to your question, obviously, when we talk about Within the government entities, we know that a lot of professionals over the number of years previously, because of the deterioration of infrastructure around skills and then the, the issue around corruption, a lot of professionals left the SOE factor or the government, the public sector in essence, because of what was happening there. So what I think is going to happen in the future, given the transparency that we begin to see, and you would have seen, I guess your question, is leading towards what is being done to restructure SOEs. So in that context, I would have said that it is encouraging that much of the SOEs to be restructured now, the Department of Public Enterprises has begun earnestly to corporatize a lot of the SOEs. If you look at Transnet, if you look at ESCOM, has been broken into three entities now that will be corporatized. There's an application that is going to 
to the assembly to try and give D-Link companies like ESCOM from the PFMA so that in the corporate context, they can begin to to have better turnarounds uh, in terms of, as an example, procurement. Because while they operate under the public space, it becomes difficult for them to operate in the sense that they have to follow strictly and adhere to the requirements of the PFMA. So the corporatizing them, they would still have accountability, but in the context of corporates, you would know now that um, Transnet, as an example, is also being corporatized in the almost similar context to telecom, because you would have seen that they opened up a tender of linking with private sector around port operations, where they would say to a corporate, come in, operate the harbor, this section of the harbor for 20 years, but you would have to build up infrastructure to do that. And then you have the 20-year window for you to also recoup the cost that you've you've done to to put in infrastructure. So that I find interesting, and it will have quite an impact because you have a mixture of public service uh, or public structure and private structure combined. So you would have now a mixture of board participation within some of these. So, so it's quite interesting, the new model of SOE restructuring. So in that sense, I see a lot of skills that uh, were lost to the private sector retaining because now the context will be different. That will assist a lot. I think you've made a number of insightful points worthy of uh, one, acknowledging, and two, maybe threshing the model a little more. You are saying you are relatively comfortable, if not confident, that the new dispensation uh, will come to fruition. One, that the restructuring of state-owned entities such as Transnet and, and ESCOM would begin to be more responsive as opposed as in the past. I will know that Trans- um, ESCOM, for instance, there's been restructured for, so, for a while now into, into those three divisions, transmission, distribution, and so on and so forth. So, what I'm picking up from you is that there's some level of confidence that you that you are you, you are seeing, but it still does not address the brokenness of the governance model or the extent to which the governance model has been broken. I suppose when you talk about restructuring inherently you are you're acknowledging the of limitations which are faced by SOEs. Are you going to draw attention to current configuration of some of the SOEs? You've got entities that are all owned by the state. And you've got entities that have a diversified shareholding. And research tells us categorically that in instances where ownership is in the hands of the state, nothing else comes to light. It's just a mess. You can look at ESCOM. You can look at SABC. You know, there's been all manner of issues. But when you juxtapose that with ownership that is more diversified, there lies in opportunity for the state to stabilize this environment to a point where they can take advantage of the BRICS resolutions and policies on trade, as well as putting the Continental Free Trade Agreement on an upward trajectory. Your take on that? Yeah, that's the point. The point I'm making is that we must acknowledge where there is progress. You know, while SOEs in the past it is pre- precisely because of the experience that opened a window for corruption that these steps are being taken of restructuring SOE so that they are strengthened to, to be able to take up challenges within the Africa trade uh, agreement as well in the manner that is has accountability and so on. Because as you know, a key lever to effective and efficient support to operation is the right organizational structure and governance, right? So in that context, and we know that while achieving 
good governance is a complex task. You know, we believe that sound governance practices offer numerous practical benefits that organizations should should integrate, you know, such as coming to operations. So that's the point I was making to say the restructuring format that you look at emanates from the mix of shareholding, which what is going on in terms of making sure that at the high level, even within the shareholding structure, there's a mixture. The corporatization means that at the shareholding level, you also invite other shareholders, as we said with the telecom model. So you would find that in the corporatization, in the restructuring of SOEs, at the higher level, at shareholder level, for instance, government has already opened up that avenue where some of these SOEs in the future will have an avenue where they are able to attract new shareholders. We then has an impact to the next level where even the board, for instance, composition will be mixed because the new shareholders will be will be represented on the board level, which will then emanate in the fact that uh, at executive level, you would begin to have the right skills being attracted because now you have the right mix at a higher level. So you would also have a situations where if you look at the new policies that the GPE has recommended even to send the act to parliament, they also are giving a framework around interference as an example. So you would, you will begin to see in the future SOE, the way that they would operate, you would begin to see gaps in terms of the gap between the executive operation and the, the board level and so on. So you would have clearly defined roles that because the issue that caused such a disaster in the operation of SOEs was exactly the lack of role clarifications between the shareholder level, the board level and the executive level. So in this new corporatization, those rules, uh, there's clearer clarification as to when does the shareholder come into effect, when does the board, uh, even within the public context. So I'm saying that if you see how, what the proposal of the TPE that is sitting now with in Parliament, which is about to be approved, recommends exactly that, different way of operation. So you can see that SOEs are being capacitated to be able to function in the corporate space, uh, especially those that require better turnarounds in corporate functioning because some of them have been delimited by the requirement that while they commercially they operate in the corporate space, you find that accountability is within the public space. So that impacts on the ability to be able to be agile, as an example, or the ability to be responsive to the commercial issue. Some of the examples that we used to have around the SABC example, as an example, while it is a public broadcaster, you would find that some of its strategies were would be shared because the requirement was that as a public entity, it needed to table its strategies within parliament and suddenly it affects its, its ability to, because in the, in the broadcasting space, your forecasting and your, your, your operation in terms of strategy is quite critical. But now when as a public broadcaster, your strategies for, for the next 10 years is now known by your competitors because they have access to the parliamentary processes. They now know what you are planning. It becomes difficult for them to operate SABC 3 as an example and SABC 2 in the commercial space because then their strategies are exposed. But now decorporatizing it, it would mean that while they are accountable to parliament, but they are able to limit some of, for instance, their confidential documents so that they are able to compete 
in the commercial arena. So that that is what I mean by saying the restructured SOEs will be able to cooperate to operate quite efficiently in the future because the governance model and the operations model would have changed quite a bit, which is would be allowed by the restructured approach. Thank you very much, Justice. Uh, Payer Bills will come back in a second and, and follow up on some of the very interesting observations that, that you made mention of. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point, it is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Mbele. I am joined by Mr. Justice Indaba, who is an executive at Knowledge Enters Group. We are getting our thoughts around the complexities of governance uh, and as far as state-owned enterprises is concerned. We move from the premise that majority of state-owned enterprises have collapsed mainly because of the of their business model. So Justice has given us insight on where things are moving in relation to restructuring of some of these institutions, uh, which are beginning to make, make a lot of sense. Perhaps maybe one question that um, is critical is about the role of board members and the distinction between non-executive and executive board members. And you can also add the independence of some of these board members. My assessment is that some of the board members that are representing other ministries, other departments, those are board members that were seconded by Minister X or Minister Y. And my observation and close to the discussion discussion I have with those kind of individuals suggests that there is no clarity on 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 their independence. You know, they always come there wearing a Minister X hat as opposed to be independent using their own judgment call on issues that relates to the business at hand. What has been your experience having those board members that are representing Ministry A or Minister B when it comes to deliberations of the board? Well, I think my experience personally, having operated in both public and private, indeed in the past, before I've I've seen these uh, restructuring proposals, which I'm hoping will be implemented in the past, yes, even though there were documents that defined the different roles of both. But you would find that uh, over and above that, exactly to your point, because people were appointed by certain ministers, somehow they they abdicated from their responsibilities by allowing the shareholder overbearing interference, right? As an example, where the shareholders just exercise too much power in terms of interfering with how the these structures operate. But you would have seen in the document of restructuring that this suddenly there's better clarity as to when, for instance, in the proposed documentation, the shareholder is given clear frameworks as to when they can come in and when they cannot, which they are limited to. For instance, in the proposals, the shareholder interference is limited to AGM. Once you have your AGM, um, the shareholder is allowed unless then they have about four points as to 
um, when can the shareholder outside the AGM come in, which would have mean that there's, there's uh, one of the items that they can come in is when there's total collapse in the entity. So the shareholder as representing their interest, they would then have a framework of interference. So there's clearly defined roles. And now the next level of the board as well, there, there is also an illustration as to when can they as a board interfere with the executive and, and so on. So it's clearly defined to that level. For instance, the board would be confined to their, for instance, review of documents at periodically at structured meeting or scheduled meetings, which in that instance would be like four required meetings a year and so on and so on. Outside that, then there's, there's clear framework as to when can they come in to talk to the executive. So I think that that will assist. It's unlike, for instance, a recent finding in Australia in 2016 where they, I think there was a company, can't remember, it's, I think it was called Adelphia. In that instance, in that company, the, 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 the chairman, Mr. Rigas, was also the, the executive CEO. Then he had board members as his sons. So that clearly in that instance, as directors, there's total collapse of governance, you know. So in our instance now, there's restructuring is informed by the experiences that we have seen that resulted in the collapse of, collapse of SOEs. But we've seen that under the new framework, it's unlikely that you would have that. We've seen, I think, once this is adopted by parliament, and some of it is, begin, is beginning to be practiced, if you would have seen in the SABC of 2022-23, Oh, in fact, uh, in the last five years, the, 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 this CEO that has just left is the only CEO that has completed his term. So he's completed the five-year term without interference. And the board has just also completed and the new board is about to be uh, appointed for the first time. So the new regulations are beginning to be implemented. If you look at SAFCOL as well, the board and the, the, the executives are now completing their services. So you're beginning to see this more and more where there's no longer the total collapse where even executives, even the boards and so on, there's just no consistency in terms of they are saving their terms. So is also international experiences of, of total, let's get that, that it is not only one way because even in the private sector, it does happen where governance has collapsed and then uh, it results in the interference and collapse of the entity. But what I'm saying is that while that has been the experience in the SOEs, one can begin to see improvement because of the new restructuring. And, and I'm giving you the examples of where I've seen that uh, you're beginning to see more stability now more and more, uh, obviously. Everything is not at where it is required yet, but, but you're beginning to see these experiences where, for one, there is consistency, there's stability, then they can begin to, to operate. And now I also added that by saying, with the new uh, corporatization of some of these entities, we will see the mix of governance structures where both shareholders and boards, when you say the board is non-executive and you, it will be non-executive indeed, where they don't exercise any executive powers, where you say the board is as independent board will be independent indeed, where uh, the board members know the consequences of, for instance, some of the abdication of their responsibilities either to the shareholder or to whoever. So I think that there is encouragement in that sense. I don't dispute the fact that the previous experience has been that of collapse. I mean, you've raised two pertinent points that I want to probe further. One is the fact yeah. that 
you, you beginning to see stability. You know, you made mention of HBC uh, CEO completing his term and the board completing its term. I agree with you. That seems to be a refreshing insight because we have not seen. I mean, HBC at some point would would have a the, the longest uh, the duration of some of the executive like literally two years. And boards, you know, within the ten years, there's about seven board members, seven CEOs, and 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 so on and so forth. Now that this one is. Uh, the issue has finished this term. It does suggest that there's some stability. But take me back to the point around independence of board members in thoughts and in action. And you raise a very interesting point about consequences. Do you think some of the board members who are supposedly, who are meant to be independent and providing independence of thought, being diligent, would at some point understand implications if they're not competent and things just falling. Do you think there's a, a, an appreciation of what those consequences would be? I think in the King 3 of that was passed in 2009, mm. the section that t- spoke about consequences, I don't think was effectively applied. Now, in the amended King 4 report, what I find that expanded on the section that deals with consequences of directors. And then they've included that issue that used to distinguish between public and private sector uh, directors. Now, if you are a director at SOE, you are, you are, you, you fall under the same king for exe- nowadays. So you find that it has an implication to the directors now, whether as long as you are a director of an entity, whether it's public or private, it applies to you. That is why you've seen recently some of the directors appearing in court and therefore being charged for delinquency. So because of that, the implication is you will have a director now in the SOE of the future that is able to argue with an interfering shareholder and say, mm-hmm. look, this is my own professionalism at stake. And then I can go to jail because now you can be charged as a delinquent director, irrespective. So you no longer have the protection that you might just be applicable applying to the to the private sector directors alone. So if so, you would find that that is why if you if you look at that section in King Four as well, you can no longer go to a meeting unprepared as a director. So if you receive and then there's a strict application of when do you get your board pack? For instance, if you are a director and suddenly you get your board pack 24 hours before the meeting, you are entitled as a director to say, I'm not accepting this board pack with a meeting that is in 24 hours time because in the King 4 uh, provision, I may be charged for not having applied my mind to the issue. So what you would say is that you would say, hey, I have a limited time. I need to have this seven days before at least uh, two weeks at the most, but seven days on an emergency or whatever, so that when I go to such a meeting, I know that I've read my board pack, I've applied my mind to it, I've come to this meeting having read it, because any decision that comes out of this, it reflects me, you know. So now, that I think is is a clearer provision about consequence management. So now, it it changes the trajectory, because now, as an individual director, you can be jailed. You can be charged even in your personal capacity. So that changes. And also the removal of the, that issue of saying there's no distinction of, of where you operate. You are a director across the board. So you know that even though you are in a public uh, SOE, King 4 applies to you. So that is a significant change.
I'm glad you raised the position around management of consequences or consequence management in, in the public sector, which is no longer different from the private sector, because one of the biggest ticket, uh, perhaps maybe lever that would ensure that board members in the state-owned entities apply their minds and recognize the level of investment that has been put there and how those investments are generating additional income uh, for the state, for the state to begin to do what it does, is, is the provision in the Companies Act that speaks that that, that is about um, a judgment rule, which calls upon for, which calls upon every board member to be diligent and to advance the cause of the entity they serve first. So that particular kind of a judgment rule in Companies Act and also reflected in King 4 makes it difficult or at least conscientizes the boards, non-executive and, and executive board members to understand that when uh, something small, something brown uh, and soft hit the friend, uh, they can't hide. They need to be seen to have demonstrated, they must be demonstrating the understanding of issues at hand and against the quality of decisions they've taken, which I think you're quite mm-hmm. correct that when we move to that particular space, we, we like to get board members that are sharp and up to the task. But perhaps maybe as you take this, this, this conversation a bit forward in Daba, all is not doom and gloom in the state-owned entity uh, environment and understand some of the issues are very complex and we're beginning to see some kind of inroads. But when you look at those that are performing well, such as Airport South Africa, DBSA, uh, and and the and, and Telcom, of course, itself. So there, there's the number of state-owned entities that are performing relatively well because they perform to a point where the state receives its dividends. Let's take a break. We'll come back in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is a time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. I'm in the company of Mr. Justin Zindaba, who is an executive at Knowledge Anchors Group. Before we went to the break, I gave Ndaba a sense of focus of excellence, if you like, in state and own entities that are performing relatively well. These entities don't go cap in hand to government asking for bailouts. Uh, they're not, you know, uh, are hitting our front pages with the walls of manner of corruption and money administration and so on and so forth. And and it begins to show that there's something positive around these particular entities, which will boils down, which in my mind boils down to shareholder model and the kind of leadership these entities have. Overall, Ndaba, entities that are performing well, what would you attribute their success to? And secondly, how do we, how do we ensure those successes rub off to other entities that are, are, are seen wanting? Well, I think I've stated two items that I would reinforce just now because earlier when you asked me, I tried to highlight them earlier. For instance, they, you spoke about AXA 
you spoke about um there's many others actually there's many entities especially the the schedule 3 b companies of government there's many which uh, dbsa for instance is one of them there's there's close to remember soes there's about uh, 400 uh, 200 yeah about 300 uh, some have been restructured and being merged so there are many of those that are operating quite well and one of the there's one of the reasons that they are operating so well, including AXA as an example, is exactly the point I gave you earlier that the DPE is trying to to remodel and restructure some of these entities as well to model exactly, for instance, AXA. AXA still has uh, uh, one shareholder which is governed, but because they were uh, corporatized, which is what they are trying to do with uh, Transnet and so on, as an example is to, for instance, with AXA, because they are corporatized, they are able to go and operate any airport across the world. You know, there are no restrictions because they were corporatized. So now uh, the government is trying to, the TPE is trying to corporatize Transnet, ESCOM, and so on. That is why you see the restructuring, so that they can be commercial in a sense. For instance, if Transnet is corporatized as well, uh, ultimately, they might exactly like AXA begin to operate other ports across the world without restrictions, as it is the case now. So uh, once corporatization has happened, they are able to themselves uh, uh, attract new revenues outside South Africa in other markets, as an example, because then they are commercial in in a, in a sense. And then the restructuring happens where even in the governance structures, uh, there's a restructured model where you would have um, a different composition of different structures. But over and above that, the second point, so there's a corporatization issue that if it happens and it happens well, then you would see the pockets of the, the, the excellence would not be pockets, but across the board because these entities would have been restructured so that they are able to operate in their industry. But you also have, for instance, you know that corporate governance if applied and uh, followed through, uh, has the capacity to develop uh, ethical frameworks across and guide how directors, managers, staff can conduct the company affairs. So one of the other things in terms of capacity is to ensure that uh, corporate governance is not only at your higher level, for instance, at uh, shareholder board level only. So you, you implement it across the organizational structure. So at, uh, even staff level, you, you have certain levels that are relevant to, to the lower level, uh, operation of the, of the company. You begin to have uh, governance frameworks even at the lower levels. I mean, one point that I think it's quite useful is that of, um, lifestyle audit. Which implies imply that you know if there's a lifestyle audit, operations of um the operations of of entities will be normalized because um, lifestyle audit would circumvent any greediness that has been displayed by by senior executive. Do you think that will work? No, not really. Um, um, lifestyle audits are just that because they give you the problem with lifestyle audits. They are reactionary in a sense, you know. So for me, uh, things that are reactionary don't work because the, the, the consequences have already applied or the bad behavior has already happened. So the effective way of introducing governance 
is to introduce it across the organization. So you become proactive in the sense because mm-hmm. in, where, once you do that, you're operating governance frameworks across the organization at the earlier stage before. So you, when you do that and it is applicable across the organization and it's not applicable at board level only, at shareholder level only, at executive only, but through the organization. So it becomes a culture of the organization where governance is the is the culture. Then the, when that happens, the issue of corruption or the issue that is uh, outside the governance structure becomes an exception rather than the norm. Therefore, those, therefore it has also eliminated the issue of the need to do auditing at the end. Auditing, you must do it as part of your normal behavior, as part of your normal operation, mm-hmm. where you do auditing across, not only on lifestyle. But across, you do, for instance, you apply your auditing processes across your operations in the manner in which you operate electrical department or in your landscaping department. So you, you audit there, you audit across. Then as an, as a factor, you can introduce lifestyle audit uh, just to, as, as a one way of a one liner in your auditing process. You know, in that sense, it's not reactive, but you have already factored in the proactivity of 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 your governance because governance must apply my issue is that governance should not be an exception it should be part of how we operate we'll have a last uh, break before we gravitate towards the end of the show let's pay our bills and come back in a second beyond governance making sense of doing business in south africa is proudly sponsored by plus 94 research the science of decision making We've weathered the unexpected. We've stepped into a new world. And now it is the time for our businesses to re-emerge. Sure-footed, clear-headed, and strategically on point. It is a time for greater certainty, for accurate, actionable market research and business intelligence to make effective, up-to-date decisions. South Africa, that is how we move our businesses and economy forward. Plus 94 Research. The science of decision making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. We are literally on the eve of our conversation. Uh, I've had a privilege of interviewing Justice Ndaba, who is the executive at Knowledge Anchors Group. And the essence of our conversation um, has been how the outcomes of the BRICS uh, reinforces the continental free trade agreement and which obviously will also reinforce objectives outlined in the National Development Plan. We have had a number of interesting points, particularly around the shareholding model. The view from Justice and I is that in instances where we have a diversified holding model, the the state is likely to um, achieve dividends. There's a balancing of power in, as opposed to where the entity is all owned by the state. And we've seen majority of those that states are own, uh, the performance is lacking purely because the environment, the governance environment, whether you're looking at um, internal audit, whether you look at external audit, whether you look at the first line of defense being the managers, the second and third line of defense, the board committee, board committees, despite all those control environments that came for uh, advances um, to ensure that there is credibility, we still have mayhem. But when you juxtapose that with entities around 
entities where there is a diversified um, shareholding model, you could almost anticipate positive outcomes. I mean, telecom is one good example of a diversified shareholding model. In the same space, you do have companies such as uh, Airport South Africa, which has performed exceptionally well um, over the past years, given the fact that it has been structured uh, in a corporatized fashion that that does away with the red tape, does away with the bureaucracy and focusing on value and, and maximizing the experience of, of the client. Those are some of the nippers, snippets that you've spoken about with Justice. Your parting shot on this uh, very interesting point, Ngaba. Your parting shot? Uh, I don't want us to dwell on the fact that governance lapses are only in South Africa. It has been proven that it is an international phenomenon, but it is up to us as a country to to be known to to be effective in cleaning up and ensuring because in a sense a corporate governance framework is therefore not a formula for business performance but it is a starting point for corporate managerial stakeholder protection accountability responsibility and success which is a key fundamental for the success of business so in a sense as I'm, uh, I said in the last point I would encourage that we see governance and um, as ethics that are applied across the organization where we we provide the right infrastructure uh, supportive infrastructure and actually make it a norm not an exception in the business so that people don't see it as just a compliance issue, but it is a an issue that says this is how we operate in this organization. In that sense, uh, corporate governance becomes beneficial to the organization and the entity. Whether It doesn't matter really whether the entity is public or private because the lapses happen across the board anyway. Even in the private sectors, there are such examples. So yeah. we need to emphasize the fact that governance frameworks must operate across organizations. Thank you once again for your very interesting observation and insight, which I think the listener uh, will mull over and perhaps change the views uh, because these issues are very complex um, and they require a deeper thinking uh, for us to make sense of them and to map our way forward. We're going to have to leave it here. Have yourself a wonderful day ahead. Shalom.